Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hello and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we talk with the author about that book and about some of the deeper issues in sport, society, and culture. This week's guest is historian Peter Hansen, who is Associate Professor of Humanities and Arts at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. We are discussing his book, The Summits of Modern Man, Mountaineering After the Enlightenment, published by Harvard University Press in 2013. Peter's book is a cultural history of mountain climbing that is expansive in scope and subject matter. He looks at the ways that mountaineering and people's ideas of mountains link to various themes in the history of modern Europe. The book is remarkable in its breadth, and it has already earned the praise of critics for offering such a rich account of our fascination with the world's highest places. In our interview, Peter also discusses more recent events in mountaineering. Just weeks ago, we marked the 60th anniversary of Hillary and Tenzing's first ascent of Mount Everest. And we also look at the recent conflict between Sherpas and Western climbers at one of the Everest base camps only a few months ago, an episode that has parallels to early climbing in the Alps in the 1800s. Mountaineering holds a significant place in the development of modern sport, and Peter Hansen has done great work in illuminating this history. Here is our interview. Uh, my guest this week on New Books and Sports is Peter Hansen. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And I'll start by asking, are, are you a climber? Not anymore. I, would, I did some climbing in the past uh, in my early 20s. Climbed Mount Rainier after college and then went to graduate school uh, a year or two later and was looking for a dissertation topic and came across mountaineering. And I'd done a little bit of rock climbing and hill climbing and walking in earlier decades growing up, and I thought this could be interesting. In the course of doing my dissertation, I did some climbing in the Alps. I figured I had to see what this was like, uh, climb the Matterhorn, and did some other things like that. So you were serious. To go up the Matterhorn is not a uh, history graduate student out for a hike. That's, that's <laughs> serious climbing. <laughs> no, it was, it was fun, though. It was good weather and uh, a good experience, and uh, I figured uh, part of what I was writing about then, you know, centered on that. I needed to get some first-hand experience. So given that you started out with, uh, you started out as a climber and then you began to do research on it, were you surprised um, by all of the connections you could make in, in kind of the broader, uh, broader swath of European history from, from mountain climbing to all of these other topics that you discuss in your book and you've talked about in your, in your research over the last 20 years? Well, I wasn't surprised by that. I was hoping for it when mm-hmm. I initially was getting into the topic. And 
it was in part a mode of professional self-defense. Uh, <laughs> back then, uh, the reaction I got from other people when I would say I was working on history of mountaineering was some version of, you can't be serious. <laughs> 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 How can you do that? Uh, that's not going to be very interesting. It's going to be just going to one climb after another. And so in, in the same mode that many histories can be just one damn thing after another. So I worked very hard to try to you know, probe beyond that, thinking first about connections between mountainous sense by the British during their imperial heyday and the British Empire, and then off in other directions. Um, and it, so with the book, as it's turned out, there are many more connections than I ever would have dreamed initially when starting out. And I want to ask about that, since you mentioned you uh, wrote your dissertation about mountaineering, and that was on British mountaineers in the uh, in the 19th century. But uh, this book is a far richer book uh, in terms of the topics it covers, and it has a much broader scope in terms of uh, the time period it covers. So I'll ask, what process did you follow in terms of uh, coming up with uh, the threads of research that you're looking at in the book as opposed to the dissertation? Right. In terms of kind of intellectual autobiography, I went from writing about British mountaineering in the 19th century and followed that up with research on the British on Mount Everest in the 20th century. And there, the imperial dimensions were quite apparent and obvious. And, and I mined that through scholarly articles for a series of years. And in some ways, that then the book and the scope that you've described came out of some analytical questions about the climbing, um, where there were, I had some frustration with the imperial dimension, which seemed uh, in a way too confining mm -hmm, or too mm -hmm. prescriptive in a sense that gave too much weight to the imperial, the ruler's side of the imperial equation, that, that the ascents are about a partnership between several people in almost every case, except when someone's doing it truly by themselves. And either, even then, they're almost always embedded in larger social networks and relations. But um, in the ascent of Everest in 1953, Hillary and Tenzing reached the summit, and there's a dispute after the afterwards about who was first. And just from other reading earlier, remembered a similar dispute about who was first on Mont Blanc, the highest peak in Europe in 1786. And so it was really the connections or the parallels between those two that led me to try to go back to Mont Blanc. Initially, I was going to do a, a book about disputes over who was first on uh, Mont Blanc, Grand Teton, and uh, Mount Everest. Grand Teton has a similar dispute in the late 19th century. In a sense, I just kept going back and uh, took on more about the 18th century. And as I was doing that work, it just became apparent that the, the background was more important than <clears throat> the, the earlier just contrast between these climbs, so that uh, if it's not an imperial relationship, what is it? And so questions about modernity and modern man came to the fore. And I want to I'll pick up on that. That was a question mm -hmm. I was going to ask is about this this thread uh, throughout the book of, of who was there first, who found it first, who was at the top first. And, and you do make a connection that this is really a, uh, how to say it, this is, this is something of a s central question of modernity. It, it's not simply a matter of mountaineering. Uh, we run into that question uh, often in the history of the modern West. So can you talk about that? 
Well, it comes up all the time, but it comes up, or let's put it this way, it came up with particular salience about the history in the mid-19th century. So it was actually this generation of the mid-Victorian mountaineers who, who's climbing in the Alps causes people to look back to say, where did this come from? Mm-hmm. Because it was, like many other mid-19th century sports, seems to arise out of nowhere, and it, it doesn't come from nowhere. But people look for antecedents, and they look for some predecessors. And they kept looking back and, and further in time, and uh, Petrarch on Mont Ventoux is one who, in the mid-19th century, is thought to be the first mountaineer and the first modern man. And that's the uh, portrayal given of, of, about him by Jakob Burckhardt in one of the more influential historical works, The Civilization of the Renaissance in Italy, from 1860. So, actually, when I started to conceive the book in this way, I went back and I read essentially everything I could find that was written about Petrarch from the mid-19th century to today, and noticed there's this formation, a, a way of writing about the modern world, a way of writing about mountaineering that has particular prominence from mid-19th century to the mid-20th century, and it's tied into various narratives about Western civilization and uh, modern man. There are then parallels when I was doing similar kind of reading about uh, Shelley's Mont Blanc uh, poem, written when uh, Percy and Mary Shelley visit the glaciers in 1816, period shortly after the Napoleonic Wars. Similar kinds of interpretations and uh, similar kind of use in a narrative of Western civilization. So it made me look around in ways for this uh, views about priority, which took me to historians of science and historians of geography, as well as literature and uh, history and so forth, to see how other people had dealt with these issues. Another theme that you bring up right away in the introduction is that our image in the West of a mountain climber is is typically that of of a solitary figure, um, usually male, standing alone on the summit of a mountain. But as you state in the opening pages of the book, mountaineering requires interdependence. So can you talk about this this paradox and how we viewed mountaineering and how you address that in the book? Well, that that's the conclusion I came to about why there's these disputes over who was first is that the question itself has this assumption that it's an individual who's standing alone by themselves, even though they're tied to someone else on the same rope, or making an ascent with someone else dependent on one another in such a way that they couldn't have made it without the other. So, the, But the assumption is that an individual is able to do it, and it's these, this emergence of a notion of an individual autonomy, a kind of sovereignty of the modern individual that is what provides the almost the philosophical standpoint that produces mountaineering and that produces these sorts of disputes. And so in the 18th century, the position on top, the summit position, was really something reserved for God or for the monarch. And it's only when people are able to envision individual rights uh, in a political domain that they begin to aspire to occupy that highest position themselves. And so the book goes into the historical background that leads these particular people who then aspire to climb Mont Blanc to the point where they're able to, to do that in Geneva and in Savoy. In Geneva, there's disputes over who is sovereign, um, who has the right to vote to, for the governing body. In Savoy, then governed by a, a monarch in Turin, there's a process 
to enfranchise people or to give them their emancipation from their feudal dues. And that is a process that's almost unique within the history of Western Europe or the, the old regime that required communities and their seigneurs or the, the person or the agency that owned their feudal rights, required them to negotiate a price for enfranchisement. And this political process helps to produce new kinds of people. It brings new sorts of individuals into existence because the, the political process actually means that they can aspire to this summit position. So it's not like some older narratives of the history of mountaineering, which had sort of taken the existence of an individual autonomy and of an individual per se as a starting point that people then had to just uh, abandon their self-restriction and aspire to go to the heights, um, to the places that they considered too fearsome or too dangerous or inhabited by demons or dragons or, or spirits and so forth. The older narrative, the kind of Western civilization narrative is that you abandon self-restriction, go to these places, assert your individual will, and that is what makes you a modern man. So this old line of why did you climb the mountain because it was there is, is really a line that's based on uh, a modern understanding of the individual. Right, right. Sometimes people ask, well, these mountains, they probably really were climbed, right, before mm -hmm. this period. Um, and for someplace like Mont Blanc or Mount Everest, I'm almost positive that 1786 was the first ascent, or 1953 was the first ascent for Everest. Because it would have been almost inconceivable for someone to go to the top. There would have been no reason, no point. Mm -hmm. Now, this is different from some other peaks, particularly in North America, which are much lower, where people who arrived on top for the first recorded ascent, you know, find campfires and other artifacts that show that other people, Native Americans in that case, had been there before them. Um, they just left no record of their prior ascents. So it depends on the peak, but for many of these really snow-covered, glacier-covered peaks, there would have been no sense before this. Another way of addressing this is that many of these same peaks are not, um, they acquire a status of an individual peak at the same time that these individuals articulate or perform these new individual identities. So that Mont Blanc itself as a mountain is simply a massif known as the glaciers. And the topmost highest point is not known as Le Mont Blanc until the mid-18th century. So who were the people that were, in the late 1700s, who were the first mountaineers who went went up the mountain for the sake of going up the mountain? Right. Well, there's three people from Geneva who are the, the leading characters in this story. Horace Benedict de Saussure, a Genevan naturalist and natural philosopher. Jean-André Duluc, merchant who became a, a naturalist himself and then uh, Marc Theodore Bury, an artist and musician who was the cantor in the Geneva Cathedral. The three of them go to climb uh, the Bouet, a peak lower than Mont Blanc but visible from Geneva and more accessible from from each side in the 1770s. And then later in the 1780s, um, Saussure follows two Chamonix natives, uh, Michel-Gabriel Pacard and Jacques Balmat. Pacard is a doctor, very well educated. He goes to university in Turin, 
has a hospital residency in Paris before returning to Chamonix as their first resident doctor. Balma is a peasant hunter, a crystal hunter, who is from very modest means. So that group of people are the first mountaineers, really, in the Mont Blanc region. And there's disputes between Duluc and Saussure because they stand on opposite sides of a set of political conflicts in Geneva. The result, eventually, in the enfranchisement of Duluc by the late 1760s. And at that point, Duluc loses interest, really, in mountaineering. And he moves to London. He works for the royal court in Windsor. So Bury and Saussure, though, continue to try to climb the peak in the 1780s. And as they are doing that, various people in Chamonix are trying this, particularly Dr. Pocard is interested, become very competitive with one another in trying to do this. Saussure tries and essentially gives up. He isn't that interested in being first, in a literal sense, to get the top. He wants to do experiments on the summit. And he wants somebody else to provide a route for him to get there so that he can do that. But Picard, who also wants to make these observations, uh, is working on his own. He doesn't really have the resources that uh, Saussure had. Saussure is one of the richest people in Geneva. And so Saussure, Bury try several times to reach the top in very elaborate expeditions. They get very high and reach a point so that they think they've discovered the route to the top. And Bury the artist uh, claims that his ideas as to how to get to the top had, had made the mountain accessible. And there's wonderful stories about the conflicts between them all. When they do, uh, when uh, Packard and Balma agree to go together, it is immediately after the village of Chamonix receives its enfranchisement, its emancipation from feudal dues. And um, the reason that Packard chooses Balma is that Balma himself, something of a loner within the village, by accident spends a night on the snows. He's caught up in the highest glaciers of Mont Blanc when some other guides that he had been traveling with to the highest to, to see if they could reach the top abandon him. They, he's off searching for crystals and they don't like him that much so they just leave without him. <laughs> and he descends and he tr- reaches a point where he can't get down any further at night darkness is falling. He spends the night on the snows. No one had ever spent a night on the snows. It was widely thought locally that you couldn't survive a night. You would freeze to death or you would fall into a crevasse. And so when he makes it, he spends the night in the snows. He's, he's quite celebrated, but he's ill. I mean, he's got frostbite and um, the doctor comes to treat him. And the story that's most likely is that Balma says to him, well, you know, Frank, for the treatment, but I don't have any way to pay you in the usual way. But I've discovered a route to the summit of Mont Blanc, and if you wish to be the first person ever to stand there, I will take you to it. So within a couple of weeks after that, that's when, when the weather clears, when there's a full moon out, and so more light at night, the two men, Pacard and Balma, make the journey together. And the story, they're each using simply... Uh, alpenstocks, a large, tall stick, you know, longer than a man is tall, which they would hold across themselves if they were to slip and fall in a crevasse to try to catch across the tops of it, and which they actually had to use together to reach the top. So there's a story that at least four times during the ascent, they reached crevasses that were impassable 
but for the fact that they could take each of their alpenstocks and lay them down in parallel, much like you might do with a ladder, and then kind of shimmy or slide across to reach the other side. So although the two men are not literally roped together, they're able to make the ascent only because of their interdependence, as it were. So they, they reach the top, the news circulates throughout Europe, and yet, despite all this, there's disputes that emerge shortly afterwards about who reached the top first. Some of these um, stories have to do with Buri's Buri's um, jealousy, that they made it to the top and he didn't. Um, he begins to circulate stories that Balma had left Picard and gone up to reach the top first, come back down, and then assisted the doctor to reach the top for the second time. Once this is published, Picard gets a signed statement from Balma that says, we reached the, the I, Balma speaking, reached the top almost as soon as the doctor, mm-hmm. um, because they were taking a slightly different line or slightly different approach to the top. Um, once Balma hears that Picard has circulated a statement signed by him, that they'd only reached the top almost as soon as one another, he confronts him in the streets of Chamonix, uh, this is almost a year later, and goes up to him and says, isn't it true that you made me sign that? And the doctor reportedly strikes him on the head in the forehead with an umbrella and then marches off. And they have, there's a scuffle, a kind of, these days we would call it a brawl on the mountain, uh, where uh, they have to be separated and uh, Pockard then goes off and explores the other side of Mont Blanc because... Uh, uh, so Sewer's there to try and make his own ascent in 1787, which he does. And So Sewer makes the ascent with a huge uh, entourage, maybe a party of 20 that are going up together. And he makes a series of experiments on top, how long it takes to boil water, barometric observations, the color of the sky, the sound, his pulse. He uses himself as an instrument. He's, uh, and he leaves before he's completed all the, he's forced to descend before he's completed all of his experiments. So when he comes down, his ascent overshadows the first ascent um, because he's able to make the observations that they weren't able to do. And there's disputes really among the three of them. There are proposals to rename the peak, to rename Mont Blanc, Mont Pacard, or proposals to call it Mont Saussure. And uh, poets in Geneva, in Chamonix, in Paris, write these odes to the various climbers that in, in part are satirical and, and in part make these very profound points about this new form of sovereignty that their climbers are trying to, some of the climbers are trying to embody. So Peter, we see today uh, that, that mountaineering uh, has become commercialized. It's it's really part of the tourism industry. And and something I found interesting in your book is that after this first ascent of uh, Mont Blanc in in 1786, the area around the mountain, the region of Chamonix, became a center of tourism uh, as other people came to either climb the mountain or just see the mountain. So can you talk about that? Yes. Everything that's happening with the Mount Everest had happened to Mont Blanc at earlier from the 1780s, when the first the, the ascent is made, there's a period during the French Revolution, Napoleonic Wars, where people are not concerned with climbing mountains. They're, the mountain is used as a symbol in various places, but they're not going to the mountains to climb. After the, that, the French and the 
Napoleonic Wars are over, they come in droves um, to the Alps. So that by the 1820s, you have people coming to make the ascent of Mont Blanc, one or two people a year, and the ascent is repeated. But more than that, uh, thousands of people a year are going to the mountain to visit it. And there's a, a particularly famous mountain accident when uh, Joseph Hamel, a Russian scientist, wants to go to clip off the highest chunk of Mont Blanc to put it in the Academy of Sciences in St. Petersburg. And, um, but he's fairly arrogant about it. And he, against the advice of the guides, forces them to continue in bad snow conditions. As, and as a result, when an avalanche comes down, uh, three of the guides are killed, lost in a crevasse, and a number of others are injured, but are able to make it safely. That incident um, prompts the guides of Chamonix to create a co company of guides that really regulates the mountain. They in increase the number of guides who are required to go with each part for any ascent, regulate the price that's charged, how many ascents can go on, and so forth. So it's commercialized and regu heavily regulated from the 1820s at the latest. In a sense, it's commercialized much earlier by the, in the 1770s, at least. You know, the guides that are being hired by the locals who make the attempts or by Saussure or Bury are, aren't doing this for free. You know, they're doing this as in some of the same ways that Sherpas or other guides in the Himalayas were doing this in the 1920s. Um, they're getting paid for it. This is the reason they're doing it. It's a high-paying job. So the uh, influx of tourists who are climbing then escalates enormously from the, in the 1850s and 60s. That's the, the period of the so-called golden age of alpine climbing, when most of the highest peaks in the Alps are climbed for the first time. And even if they may have been climbed once, people come back to climb them by new routes. Alpine clubs form in uh, all the various nation states in Europe uh, for all these thousands of climbers who are interested in this. And many of those alpine clubs begin to regulate climbing within their territory. You know, the French Alpine Club works with local uh, state authorities to try to regulate guides or to regulate climbing in a, within France and some other places. It's, a, it's the same kind of story. And this does connect as well, I noticed. Uh, there was an element of muscular Christianity in this uh, golden age of, of mountaineering, right. just as you find in, in other emerging modern sports at the time. Right. Oh, absolutely. And there's a series of kind of confluence of influences like that, particularly in Britain, where there's muscular Christianity, so that someone like Leslie Stephen, um, you know, is, uh, has gone from a place in his college's boat out to the mountains. Um, so in the same period that a lot of collegiate sports or rugby and, and so forth are getting institutionalized as sports, and essentially it's the same period that mountaineering is taking this institutionalized form through the alpine clubs and climbing clubs and uh, you know, national organization. You had mentioned the, uh, um, the tension between guides and, uh, and climbers on Mont Blanc in the uh, in the early 1800s, and so I was wondering if uh, you were uh, noticing connections uh, between that episode and what happened on Mount Everest this past spring when uh, uh, a group of Sherpas attacked Western climbers. Uh, I, I thought about that a lot. There are a lot of parallels. If you think about 
what happened on Everest in terms and and not take as uh, preordained oh Sherpas attacked Western climbers but there's this conflict what are the sources of the conflict mm-hmm, inside then it looks a lot more like what happened before where what's happening now is a kind of assertion by Sherpas of to regain control over some of, of the climbing to regain control over Mount Everest um, in some ways that looks a lot like what guides from Chamonix did in the 1820s, for example, um, and in some later periods as well in the 19th century. But in some ways, the the story that's told in The Sum of the Modern Man seems visible on Mount Everest. What it means to be reasserting their control is it's a reassertion of a form of sovereignty. It's just a particular form of it that's relevant today in that part of the world. It's not the same assertion of the same kind of sovereignty that it was in Europe or uh, on Mont Blanc uh, at this much earlier period. But um, for many climbers, that's what's that's what's happening when they climb. They're trying to for, for themselves. You know, this is who I am. What I'm trying to demonstrate. One an American climber, female climber, climbed Everest in uh, late '80s, early '90s, said, "Because it's there is really because I'm here." Uh, that's the attitude. Uh, it's not that it's, this is why I'm doing it. It's because I'm here. Um, that's fine, as long as you're not stepping on somebody else's toes, which is looks to be like what happened with the so-called brawl on Mount Everest this spring. So let's jump ahead to uh, um, the first ascent of Everest in 1953, mm-hmm. which you do talk about in the book. and uh, And, of course... Just a few weeks ago, we had the 60th anniversary of that first successful climb. And I want to ask you, what was the response in 1953 to news that uh, Tenzing and Hillary had climbed the summit? Well, it was widely celebrated as a, the triumph of humanity, um, if you were to o- overgeneralize it. Now, it always gets more... <laughs> I was going to say, I think you could that. go from humanity down to uh, to smaller circles, correct? Right, right. So, uh, but... So it was deeply political. Here you have a British expedition in which the two people who make it to the top are a New Zealander and a Sherpa. And in 1953, the New Zealander was considered basically British. Um, The Sherpa was not. Um, And what was the Sherpa? Uh, What kind of nationality uh, is Tenzing? And that was contentious. He was raised in Nepal, uh, lived in India and claimed as a citizen of India um, at the time of the ascent. Uh, and so you have all kinds of reactions to, isn't this wonderful that you have a cooperation of East and West? It, this is the triumph of the human spirit. Uh, this is the triumph of Britain. This is the triumph of India. This is the triumph of... Uh, because the two climbers that make it to the top represent these particular nationalities, it becomes hard to generalize it as a universal accomplishment. Uh, it becomes more contested. Now, the further away you are from the event, the, the less all those uh, distinctions and differences seem to matter today to many people. Although it was interesting that an article about the the recent brawl on Everest that referred to Tenzing as an Indian prompted all kinds of comments in the comment section on that uh, from Nepali saying, how can you possibly say he's an Indian when he was really from Nepal? 
Um, so those kind of issues are still there. Um, and even in Britain, although this was the great British ascent, there was a team of climbers that went in the 1970s to climb Everest by a new route. And they made a big fundraising pitch that there had been no Briton who'd ever stepped on the summit of Everest. And so they wanted to put the first British climbers on top. Um, and this is despite the first ascent really being the consequence of a British expedition. So the response uh, in 1953 was tells you about what happened at this moment when empires were in decline and in, in dissolution. The independence of India had happened in 1947. China had undergone revolution in 1949. So Tibet was closed. Nepal had only recently opened up. It was a, a, the product of this particular post-colonial moment. Um, the Cold War was getting going um, in 1953. It's, it's at its deepest freeze. It's a really fascinating uh, moment in time. And there was the the familiar story of who was there first, right? So, well, Hillary and Tenzing, when they return to Kathmandu, there's these disputes. So, Tenzing must have been, Tenzing was first. There was posters as they make a ceremonial procession back into Kathmandu, showing Tenzing on top, dragging a recumbent Hillary from beneath him up to the summit on the rope, and um, so they re- released a joint statement. Hillary and Tenzing, that we reached the summit almost together. That didn't really satisfy anyone. I mean, it, it sort of quashed the issue for the moment, but people would say, well, what is this almost? Who was, who was really first? And so a few years later, 1955, Tenzing publishes an autobiography in which he says, Hillary was in front of me on the rope. He got there first. I say this not because this is an issue that matters to either of us, but for the greatness of Everest itself. It should not be undermined by these kinds of petty disputes. And um, Hillary, in, in later works, says also that he, he was in the lead when the two of them reached the top, but not that they considered that an issue at all. Mm-hmm. Peter, you have a section in, the, in that chapter on the, the first ascent of Everest about religion and, and Mount Everest and that uh, yeah expedition and uh, and you do discuss as well uh, religious views of, of the Alps and uh, something that that struck me from reading your book but also from reading the writings of contemporary Western climbers is how mountains go back and forth seemingly from being enchanted to unenchanted and so in the case of the Alps 300 years ago the Alps were a place of supernatural evil and mythical creatures. And then they became symbols of human progress. And now that you have Western climbers visiting mountains, such as the Himalayas, that are are central to local religious traditions, uh, many of these Western climbers speak of the mountains um, in in the same sense of having some religious or spiritual meaning. So so I'll ask you, are are, are mountains becoming enchanted again in the Western imagination? That's a good question. A uh, good question, a good, a good way of putting it. Yes, they probably are, is the short answer. Um, the more complicated answer would be uh, yes, but they always have been. Okay. Um, in the sense that, or I would argue that they always have been. So the, you know, the book tries to take that dimension and put it back into the story by offering thinking like a mountain as an angle from which to look at the story. 
that deserves just as much importance as thinking like a self, that individual preeminent on the summit, or thinking like a state, which is the more abstract way of looking at the, at the mountain. But thinking like a mountain has always been there. But there was this narrative, which I would associate overall with these narratives of Western civilization, of modernity as being, in its effects, disenchanting. And that was a good thing, according to the received narrative. Now, I think it's always been there. It's just more or less visible respects. So what happens in 1953 that you mentioned was uh, at the summit, Tenzing, who is a Buddhist, takes uh, an offering that he brought with him and leaves it on the mountain and says a prayer of thanks to the, to the spirit of the mountain who had helped him to reach the top. Hillary, who at the time said he had no religious beliefs of his own, saw him doing this and re- remembered that he had a cross in his pocket that had been given to him by John Hunt, who had in turn been given to him by a Catholic priest in England, and he buries that in the snow. And so that story doesn't really come out for several months afterwards. The story of Tenzing leaving his offering, offering comes out immediately, but it's, say, the following August or September after a May ascent that someone in the party says that this cross had been left at the top, and this story makes its way around the world, and um, it becomes celebrated by the priest who gave the, the uh, crucifix, by the pope who had blessed it at one time, and so forth. Um, but it, to me, showed, and it's, it's used, this, the story of the cross, by John Hunt, who was the leader of the expedition in 1953, again, as a symbol of international cooperation and as of this union of East and West when he tries to address the topic of why climb mountains in an interpretive essay, and to some extent in his book, The Ascent of Everest, uh, which appeared the year of the ascent. But it kind of gets lost, or is a position or a story that's rendered invisible by these predominant narratives about modernity as being necessarily disenchanting. And when you mention contemporary climbers, there are many Western climbers who go to the Himalayas who are basically Buddhists, and uh, their attitude toward the peak very closely resembles that of uh, the local peoples that they've met and encountered when they arrive uh, in the Himalayas. So there's a, a search for meaning in these ascents that's not just about the assertion of an individual's I am here stance, but how does my ascent, my position on the top, relate to my attitude toward the rest of the world that's not reducible to these formulas of thinking like a self or thinking like a state. Peter, we're almost out of time, and uh, okay. I, want to, I want to turn back to this this big question of, of who was there first. Mm-hmm. Um, we're now we're running out of firsts. You know, all, all the, the mountains have been climbed. Mountains in Antarctica have been climbed. A 13-year-old has climbed Everest. An 81-year-old has climbed Everest. So in, in your view, what is the future of mountaineering in a world without firsts? Hmm. <laughs> uh, no longer obsessed with firsts uh, would be the future of mountaineering. Um, the end of the book doesn't address this the way you've posed it. And the way you've posed it is a fair question, which I'm not sure I'll answer it precisely in that way. But mountaineering in the age of 
climate change is the issue that faces people today squarely when they see melting glaciers, they see the mountain changing in front of them. I mean, oftentimes the mountain is approached by the climbers as if it's just sort of there and unchanging. In one sense, you could answer your question about what does it mean in the, when there are no more firsts to say, well, there always is a first. Mm-hmm. It's a different first for me than it was, it would be for you. It was for Hillary and Tenzing or for Edward Wimper or Balma and Pockard or whoever. Um, but the melting glaciers do pose this issue of the change going on in the mountains that is visible even within the last 10, 15, 20 years. There's less snow. It's the analog to the hotter summers, the colder winters, the rising sea levels, and so forth. Embedded in the book is a very gentle assertion that this individual autonomy that is associated with the summit position of man alone is related to this individual autonomy in relation to nature that has led to the kind of climate change that we see around us. When you see yourself as being totally separate from other people, the natural world, um, the mountain, you behave differently than if you see forms of interconnection and interdependence between yourself and other people or between yourself and the mountain and yourself and the natural world. So that in some ways, the who was first debates that are you know, recounted in the book we need to change the question. It's not about what do we do when there's no more firsts, because the, fir- the thinking like a first is what led, has led us to this position where we are exercising as humanity, as a collectivity, an inordinate influence on the direction of global climate today. So we do need to change the question or change the, the objective. If, mountain climbing is approached with an attitude or in a spirit that is not about the conquest of nature, not about the dominance over the peak, but in in some other stance, and that's one that will have to be worked out by people over a long period of time. And mountaineering, like many other things, is really the product of the collective judgment of a whole lot of people who do this who kind of collectively determine the rules of doing it. There's no International Olympic Committee that says these are the rules for mountaineering. It it gets kind of worked out as a collective, as a group of people who decide what should count in, in the thing that they do, that they participate in together. So the attitude and the spirit of what how it's done really matters a lot. And there's a lot of contemporary climbers who think about this a lot and you know it's on the agenda for a lot of people um but you know maybe we need fewer firsts some more thinking about these broader issues about our relationship to the mountain and i'll ask peter what are you what are you working on now <laughs> um everest actually <laughs> um yeah and the commercialization of everest and it's um how you look back at its history a little differently. Because commercialization, when you look at it from the point of view of the Sherpas, it's helpful, it's productive. It's not just a story of decline, which is the way it's often portrayed. And so that's something I'll be working on for the next uh, period of time. You've been listening to an interview with Peter Hansen about his book, The Summits of Modern Man, 
Mountaineering After the Enlightenment, published by Harvard University Press in 2013. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from political science to sociology. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week.